All right. Let's do this. Okay. All right. We'll get to that later. But for now, turn to Philippians chapter 3 if you have a Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, we have one for you. Uh, We got a couple people coming down. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and they will hand one, throw one, toss one, probably hand one to you. So uh, we'd love for you to follow along. Philippians chapter 3. If you're in one of these Bibles, it's page 819. So we uh, are just picking back up our study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. In the spring, uh, we spent like eight weeks working through chapters one through two, and now we're going to spend the next, I think, six weeks now uh, finishing up and going through chapters three through four. And so last week, uh, as we got back into this book, we looked at the beginning of chapter three, uh, where Paul is reflecting on um, his past, and he's looking back uh, at all of the things uh, that he used to use (laughs) to uh, claim some sort of spiritual identity. And so he looks back uh, at the way that he can identify himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. Not only was Paul ethnically Jewish, uh, but Paul could speak Hebrew. He could speak Aramaic, which is something that not all of the Jews in the first century could do. Paul could even trace his lineage back to the tribe that he was from. Uh, Paul calls himself faultless as far as keeping the law. Uh, And so he looks back on all of these things um, that he once was. Uh, But then he said, but you know what? I'm going to take all of that and I will gladly throw it in the trash pile uh, because it's all useless compared to the thing that I really desire. And for Paul, the thing that he really desires is to know Christ and the power of the resurrection. And so for Paul, what he's going for, his aim, his goal, uh, is an intimate knowledge, not only of who Jesus is, but a knowledge and an understanding of how the gospel can transform his life. What does it mean to say that I have been changed by the resurrection? How does that work out in my life? That is Paul's desire, and that is Paul's goal. And so when we pick up today... Um, In verse uh, 12, uh, Paul's continuing that thought, saying, this is my goal, to know the power of the resurrection, to know Christ and the power of the resurrection. He says this, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. No, stop right there. Um, because that's a pretty interesting thing uh, for Paul to say. Here, I got a photograph of Paul here, so you can, some of you are visual learners. This was taken as a candid. He wasn't aware it was being taken. Are those uh, playing cards? I just noticed that. What is that in front of me? Like playing solitaire in between letters. Uh, <laughs> this guy, Paul, uh, is a pretty important figure in the history of the Christian church. Um, Paul wrote many of the letters that make up the New Testament, and our understanding of uh, inspiration of Scripture uh, tells us that God, in some uh, supernatural way, uh, revealed and spoke and inspired Paul, and then he wrote 
these things. And so Paul has this really intimate knowledge of who God is, uh, and especially of what God has done through the person of Jesus. Uh, One of the other things that we are uh, certain of here is that Paul was the first person to really understand uh, that it no longer mattered if you were Jewish or Gentile or Dutch or whatever, you could come to God on even terms. Paul was the first guy that really got that, and then he would go on and teach others. And so Paul, based on simply our understanding of Scripture, we know that Paul knew a lot. And he goes on to write these letters, uh, and almost instantly, almost immediately after his letters are done being written, people start writing letters about his letters, right? They start writing books and documents trying to fully interpret and fully understand what Paul is saying here. There's a whole spectrum of theology called Pauline theology, uh, in which is the goal. The goal of Pauline theology is to fully understand the things that Paul wrote. And so there's books, and you can take classes, and you can get a degree in Pauline theology. people who are dedicating their lives to understanding the things that Paul knew. Uh, In London, one of the main um, features of the skyline in London is a cathedral called St. Paul's Cathedral. St. Paul's Cathedral is the head of the Anglican and the Episcopal Church. You don't get a cathedral named after you (laughs) unless you know your stuff, right? Maybe you get like a little chapel or something, but a cathedral, that's something. This is Paul, right? This is who this guy is. This is the influence that this man had on the Christian faith. Paul famously says, uh, follow me as I follow Christ. Everything that Paul did was based on the person and the action of Jesus. But he called people to follow him, follow himself as he followed after Christ. This is who Paul was, and this is the influence, this is the weight that Paul had on the history of Christianity. So, for Paul to say, I want to know, I want to fully understand, I want to fully experience the resurrection and who Christ is, but I don't consider myself to have gotten there yet. That's a pretty interesting statement. And maybe there's a couple ways that a lot of us uh, respond to that. Uh, Perhaps some of us say, well, if Paul can't do it, right? Paul had a cathedral named after him. People write books about Paul. If he can't fully understand the gospel, if he uh, doesn't fully get it, if he's still in this process of learning and growing and being changed by the gospel, if he's still in that process, what? <laughs> there's not a lot of hope for me. I might as well just quit now, right? Because if Paul is still a work in progress, what am I going to be? And so maybe that's one way to approach it. But maybe a more helpful <laughs> way to look at it is to say, if Paul, the guy who had the cathedral named after him, the guy who had it all together, so we think, if he is still a work in progress, perhaps the fact that I don't have it all together, perhaps that I sometimes don't allow the gospel and the resurrection to penetrate everything that I am, perhaps the fact that I sometimes forget and fail and stumble, uh, maybe that means I'm not so hopeless after all. And so Paul starts with this statement saying, I want to fully know and experience the power of the resurrection, and I'm still a work in progress. And we say, that's where we are too. And so that's how he starts here. But then uh, he keeps going. And the second part of this this, uh, little paragraph here is where I want us to sit for the rest of our time together this morning. 
So in verse 13, he says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says, There are some things that I don't fully get. There are some things that I'm still learning. There are some things that I don't fully know. But the thing that I do know with certainty and the thing that I can say with certainty, amidst the the learning and the growing that I'm still doing, the thing that is solid and the thing that is sure is that I am still moving, uh, forgetting what is behind. I'm straining towards what is ahead. And so here in this statement... Uh, we see um, the movement aspect of the gospel. The Christian faith is really a faith about movement. It's not about standing. It's not about stagnicity. Is that a word? It is now. Somebody Google that. Stagnicity. Uh, it's not about being still, but it's this, uh, this uh, faith of movement. And this here in the statement, we see Paul in this backwards and this forwards moment, movement. So let's talk about this. Uh, the first thing that he says is one thing I do know uh, forgetting what is behind. And so what is it that Paul is talking about when he says forgetting what is behind? Now, there's a couple uh, ideas, there's a couple interpretations here of what Paul means. Uh, some will suggest that Paul is talking about his life since he's become a Christian, since he had this huge uh, revival uh, calling, changed his whole life around. In those days, uh, since that time when Paul's been a Christian, perhaps he's looking back at all of the successes that he's had, right? Paul has started tons of churches. Paul has discipled a whole bunch of leaders. Paul has worked with men and women who have uh, used the things that he's taught to spread the gospel. And Paul can look back at his life and say, wow, like I've done a lot. I've traveled a lot. I've spread the gospel a lot. People have heard my teachings and have responded to it. And perhaps Paul is looking back at that and he's saying, I don't want those things those accomplishments to ever make me think that I've arrived. And so when Paul says, looking back, perhaps he's talking about all the ways he succeeded in the past and not letting that success shape where he's going. Or maybe he's looking back at his life since he's been a Christian and he's looking at all the ways that he has not succeeded in the past. All of the times when he made a mistake, all the times when he yelled at somebody, all the times when he lost his temper, all the times when he decided he'd rather sleep in than, you know, wake up and do whatever he was called to do that morning and looking back at all the failures he's had since he's been a Christian and saying, I'm not letting that, uh, I'm not looking back at that. So there's that perspective of his life since a Christian. But I think uh, that what he's saying here, when Paul says, uh, forgetting what is behind, has more to do with what he just uh, got done writing in the verses before. So we just talked about all of these things that Paul used to use Uh, to establish some sort of spiritual identity, his Jewishness, his keeping of the law, the fact that he could trace his tribe back. But there's one there in particular that I think is really important for us uh, to zero in on. And we've talked about this before, um, but I want to rephrase this. Paul says in um, verse 9, yeah, verse 9, to be found here, no, where are we here? 6, thank you. I'm glad I have my assistant here. Verse 6, he says, as for zeal, persecuting the church. All right, so we've talked about this word zeal before, but maybe it's worth reminding. We don't really use this word a lot. 
Uh, and when we do use the word zeal or to be zealous for something, it means like just to be really excited. Like, for example, I get zealous for Brock's Harvest Mix candy. Um, <laughs> uh, we may get zealous for um, Michigan winning football games. Ooh, sorry about that one. Um, right? To be zealous in our context, in our language, is just to be excited about something. But that's not really the meaning of this word uh, to someone like Paul, who's operating from this first century Jewish mindset. For Paul, zeal had less to do about being excited for something as it did to have with uh, killing people, which I'm sure you all saw that coming. Uh, So when we talk about zeal in the world of the Bible, uh, it's important for us to see how this word is being used other times, because it really only it really only pops up a few other times throughout the scriptures. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's a few people who are identified identified as being zealous or having zeal. Uh, there's a guy named Judas Maccabee who came in between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. You may be familiar with the festival of Hanukkah. Uh, Hanukkah comes in part by Judas Maccabee rallying up a, a bunch of guerrilla soldiers, not the monkeys, but uh, people in trees and stuff, uh, which also could be monkeys, but uh, guerrilla soldiers, and uh, fighting back these Greeks and killing these Greeks in order to rededicate the temple. Judas Maccabee is known as someone who had zeal. But one of the best examples of this uh, is this guy named Phineas. Uh, we meet Phineas uh, in the time of the Exodus period, when Israel has just spent years as slaves in Egypt, and now God has delivered them out of that slavery, and they're traveling to this new land, this new existence, this new home. When we meet Phineas, Israel is just about to get to the land. Um, But the people that stand between the Israelites and the land uh, don't really want the Israelites coming through, and so they try to find all these ways to stop them, to scare them, and to curse them. Um, One of the, the ways that this happens as a group decides, well, here's what we'll do. In order to get the Israelites distracted and get them unclean, uh, we're going to send these women into their camp (laughs) with uh, bad intentions. And so in Numbers chapter 25, we see this happening. uh, And this is exactly, keeping this PG for the kids here, uh, this is exactly what happens. They get into the camp and the Israelites, some of the men who are less uh, attentive to what's going on, get a little bit distracted. Uh, But Phineas is not the case. So Check this out. This is Numbers uh, 25. Uh, Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left, about the PG thing here, close your eyes. Uh, He left the assembly took a spear in his hand and followed the Israelite into the tent and he drove the spear into both of them, right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. (laughs) So this was a scene that didn't make it into the uh, PG-13 version of the Bible. Uh, But Phineas goes into this tent and he kills these people uh, because... From what he understands, they are breaking the law of God. They are making the camp unclean. And so Phineas takes up swords, a spear in this case, and acts in violence on the behalf of God. And then so a couple verses later it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, 
since he was as zealous for my honor among them as I am. I did not put an end to them in my zeal. So a couple things here, right? God is shown to be having zeal, but Phineas is seen to be having zeal because he took a spear and he killed people who weren't following the ways of God. So this act of taking up swords and spears and using violence in order to accomplish something for God, in order to fight on, the, on behalf of God, this is what zealousy or zeal was in the ancient world. Uh, today, you turn on the news and you see people all over the world now, not just in a certain area of the world, but all over the world, uh, strapping on guns and bombs and going into public places uh, and killing people for what? For the religion that they believe in, for the God that they are serving. Now, we understand this to be completely misguided, right? And unnecessary and violent and just horrible. But uh, the concept here is the same. Thinking that you are serving God by killing people, we call it terrorism. We call it religious extremism. Uh, We condemn it. But in the ancient world, uh, for someone in the Jewish mindset, this could be seen as somebody acting with zeal. And if it was correct, and if you were on the side of God, in many cases, this is praised. And so Paul takes this really thick, heavy, violent word, and he claims it for himself. He says, I was a zealot, and I acted in zeal. Which again is okay if you're zealous and you're in the right. But what is Paul also saying here? He wasn't right. He thought he was acting out of zealousy and zeal to protect the ways of God, but in fact, he was actually killing the people that God was saving. And so Paul was not actually a zealot at all, but he was just a a murderer, right? By acting in this way, um, by pursuing and being a part of the killing in the zealous acts, this extremism, Paul uh, was a murderer. And he's saying to these Philippians, all of this stuff I used to think was the thing that made me who I was. I used to think it was my righteousness to the law. I, think, I thought it used to be my Jewishness. I thought it used to be my willingness to take up violence and take up arms in order to protect God. But now, all of that stuff, Paul realizes, was misguided. And so Paul is looking back at his past. And he's reflecting on some really, really dark stuff, right? I'm sure for a lot of us, if you're like me, uh, there are things in your past uh, that you don't like to think about much. There are places in your past that you don't like to go. Maybe it's something that you said. Maybe it's something that you did. Maybe it was a whole person that you were. Maybe it was things that people did to you, right? Maybe somebody treated you unjustly and you kind of hold, when you go back to that place, you hold uh, this sense of revenge and the sense of not being able or willing to forgive. And so we have these places in our past 
that we don't like to go to and we don't like to think about. And when you do think about it, and when you do start to kind of sit there and stew in that for a little bit, uh, you begin to kind of get really, really weighted down and heavy, right? Because our past, uh, the things that we've done, the things that we're not proud of, the things that once defined us, like our mistakes, our sin, our failures, the people that we once were, the things that were once done to us, that stuff can be really, really heavy. And if you try to sit there for any amount of time, it's like the weight of who you were, the weight of what you did, the weight of what was done to you, it just weighs you down. And it gets to the point where it becomes so heavy and you're just there and you're just sitting in it and you just can't move. You can't get beyond it. Maybe you can try a little bit. But that heaviness, that weight, that anchor is just there. And it's obstructive. And it stops you from doing or moving or going. And you find yourself just in this place, in this downward spiral of depression or addiction or revenge. And you don't get anywhere. Am I the only person that's ever been there? Right? That's something that we feel. So this is Paul, right? Paul's looking back at his past, this really heavy anchor. And I'm going to assume that no one in here uh, (laughs) can really uh, resonate with Paul when he calls himself a murderer and a zealot and a terrorist. And so perhaps that weight is even heavier (laughs) than some of the things that we feel. And so this is Paul looking back. And he says, this was who I am, but, what does he say? (laughs) One thing I do know, forgetting what is behind, I strain forward to that which Christ has called me heavenward. That word forgetting is really key to understanding what Paul's getting at here. Um, It's not forgetting as if you just like completely obliterate this thing from your memory, like you get into a time machine and you can go back and just like, you know, Marty McFly, none of this stuff ever happened. Uh, But this word here, when Paul is using forgetting, uh, has more to do with not letting things that happened before be the primary influencer on where he is now and where he is going. Right? So it's not about wishing these things never happened or pretending that this wasn't who you were or pretending that this wasn't your reality. But what Paul is saying is he's not letting these things that were very real in a very real part of his life, not letting these things be the primary influencer on where he is now and where he is going. Because there's something else that's doing that, right? Instead of the weight of who he was and what he did, Paul is now seeing himself as released from that anchor, released from that weight by the power and the knowledge and an understanding of the resurrection. This is one of the most beautiful, profound statements of the gospel in the scripture. 
And Paul says, this is who I was. And that's real. And I can't change that. And there's nothing about that that I can go back and, you know, as much as I wish it wasn't there, that was still who I am. But that is not the thing that has put me here and that is moving me forward. My life is not shaped by this trajectory, but by the trajectory of the gospel and of the resurrection of Jesus. Release, hope, forgiveness, inability to forgive others, these are now the things that direct and guide. This is what Paul is saying. This is the gospel. This is the message of Jesus. This is the reality of what the life, death, and resurrection does in our lives. And I'm sure as many of us have, could say, yes, I've been to that place where that anchor was just there, I'm sure a lot of us can also now, from the other side, look back and say, wow, I'm so glad that even though I was that person, that's not the thing that I am now. In a few minutes, uh, we're going to take communion together. Communion is nothing magical or special except for the fact that it is a ceremony or a ritual that Christians have been doing for thousands of years uh, as simply a way uh, to respond to this. Just recently, um, I was in a, Natalie and I were in a group that kind of helps work us through some of the grief that we're feeling uh, since her mom passed away. And one of the, the, the leader there said, uh, when we don't have words, we do a ceremony, right? When there are no words, we perform a ceremony. When we take communion, it seems silly, right? To take a little piece of bread and a little half sip of juice to do it together in this room with some people maybe you've never met before uh, and to think that there's something in that. But there is. (laughs) Because what communion is, it's a representation of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which in turn is a representation that that thing doesn't have to be the thing (laughs) that masters me. Who I was, what I did, what was done to me is no longer the thing that directs and shapes me the most. But there's something more, something more powerful than that. And that's the resurrection. So before we do communion, though, I just want to read one story from the life of Jesus. A story that puts this whole concept into flesh and blood in a really powerful way. This is a story that I'm sure a lot of us have heard many times. This week, as I was reading it in our Readers United group, it just struck me as how beautiful and brilliant this story is. So I'm just going to read this to you. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And in the law of Moses, uh, it commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They're using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. 
When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and rode on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Listen to this. Then, neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This story is almost cliche. It's such a strong part of the gospel, and we hear this, oh, cast the first stone. Who am I to judge? Thrown all over the place. But what Jesus is saying here, and what Jesus is doing to this woman, is a brilliant display of what the gospel does to each of us. This woman has this heavy, heavy anchor caught in the act of adultery. When Jesus responds where he simply says, neither do I condemn you. In other words, that anchor is no longer there. But then what? Go and leave your life of sin. In that single sentence, that single phrase, Jesus takes this woman's life that's heading in a certain direction and completely changes the, direct, the trajectory of where she's going because of the power of the gospel. Jesus says that no longer is the thing that defines you. That was a real part of who you were. That sin was a part of your identity. But now, that is not the thing that is directing you. And so go, leave that here with me, and live a new way. This is the gospel. Whatever you've done, whoever you were, whatever you've been, maybe this was before you put your faith in Jesus, but maybe this was after, because we all stumble, we all fall, we all fail. The things that you have done, the things that have done to, been done to you, those are not the things that are ultimately guiding you. That weight that Paul had and that we have is transformed and released by the power of forgiveness that is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So we're going to take communion. So I want to invite my guys to come up. Um, We're going to take communion. At Celebration, we are very open. (laughs) We want anybody who's put their faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus at any time, at any place in their life to join us in communion because this is a powerful thing. Um, You don't have to be a member here. You don't have to do anything. If you uh, have faith in Jesus, join us. And as we do this, maybe this is a time (laughs) where a silly little piece of bread (laughs) and a silly little sip of wine, of juice, can be a profound part of your life. Perhaps today, as we eat and we drink together, 
This is the day when you finally let that anchor go. When you finally let your life take a direction of hope in life and forgiveness that is found only in the gospel. And so we're going to pass out both the juice and the bread together. Uh, when you get it, just hold the bread and hold the juice. We'll have some words of scripture and then we'll take together. And so um, let's reflect on the power of the gospel. Now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for the, and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Romans 8, 1 through 4. Paul writes to the Corinthians, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meanings do more harm than good. For I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's just a piece of bread and a little bit of juice. But what it represents is the fact that in Christ, in the death, life, and resurrection of Jesus, there is no condemnation. That anchor doesn't shape who you are. Let's eat and drink together. God, we all have pasts. We all have places that we don't like to go. Things that we've done, people that we've been, things that have done to us, been done to us. God, the power of the gospel that in some mysterious yet profoundly world-changing way those are not the things that shape us and direct us. God, we want to be people who can forget the past, not as if it never happened, but can forget it in the way that it does not shape where we're going because we want to be shaped by you, by the cross, by the empty grave. So God, work in the lives of every single person here. We put our faith in Christ 20 years ago, 20 minutes ago. But we haven't got to that point yet. God, it's my prayer that we all leave this place in some small way transformed by the release and the condemnation-free gospel that we find only in the life, death, and resurrection of your Son.
We pray all of these things in the healing, forgiving, and powerful name. Amen. Grace be with you.